We at the WBDC dedicate our Raising Up the Vote campaign and Make Your Mark podcast series in memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a woman whose legacy for justice, equity, and women's rights lives on. Raise your hands up! Raise them up! Welcome to the Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women, Voting, and Equality, a WBDC interview series where influential women share their glass ceiling stories, how they fought for their voice and rights, became civically engaged, and changed the status quo. In today's episode, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Future of Female Leadership, we'll explore the passion and purpose needed to ignite the next generation of young women. Today, we are joined by Dorothy Bridges. Dorothy is on the board of directors at U.S. Bank Corps and a retired senior vice president of public affairs at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. We're also joined by Christina Ewig, professor of public affairs and faculty director at the Center of Women, Gender, and Public Policy at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. And finally, we are joined by Attorney General Heath Ellison. When we thought about the theme for today's discussion, the future of female leadership, we thought also about allyship, the need to have men in positions of power to actively support women. So we're glad to have you here, Attorney General, for being part of this conversation. And I'm Pahua Hoffman, Senior Vice President of Community Impact at the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundation. And I will be the moderator for today's discussion. To get us started, I wanted to talk about each of your journey to this point in your career and in your life. Professor Ewig, I'm gonna start with you. I've been fascinated by your current research where you are investigating whether electing more women and indigenous peoples to national political office in Latin America has resulted in policy agendas that favor greater equality for these groups or not. I'm a firm believer that our environment and our upbringing help inform our future work and our career paths. Can you reflect on your own personal and professional leadership path? Was there a formative moment that brought you to this place and the work you are doing right now? Well, thank you for having me, Pahua. And it's really a great pleasure to be on this podcast with Dorothy Bridges and Attorney General Keith Ellison. Was there a formative moment that led me to my current career path? I would say that there was really a formation process in my upbringing. I was raised by a single mom. Um, My parents divorced when I was age four. And so I learned firsthand about the challenges of single parenthood, the challenges single mothers face in particular. But I also had a model of success in my household of someone who became a professional woman, social worker, and raised a child at the same time. And so I never doubted that a woman could accomplish what, accomplish what she wanted to when she set out uh, and set her mind to it. It also meant that I had a, um, a lot of independence as a child. I uh, was a latchkey kid at age nine and I was cooking dinner for, for my mom as she would call and give me instructions on the phone from probably about age 10 forward. So those experiences made me realize well, I guess not realize that there were any limits to what I might accomplish, but also with a very clear sense that it wasn't going to be easy, any path that I took, because I certainly witnessed the challenges that she had in raising me. So I think that was the biggest part of, of what 
led me to my convictions today that have to do with promoting gender equity and gender equality. Uh, my focus on Latin America does come from a formative moment, and that's when I took off and did a study abroad program in Uruguay uh, back in the 1980s, and that's what led me on my path for studying Latin America. Wonderful. I hope we get back to your adventures in Latin America some, at some later point in the conversation. Thank sure. you for your response. Attorney General Ellison, as you reflect on your leadership journey, the impact you've been able to make as an elected official, being the first Muslim to be elected to Congress and the first African-American representative from Minnesota, and your path to becoming Attorney General of Minnesota. Same question to you. Was there a formative moment or experience that had an impact on you as a leader today? You know, there probably were a thousand formative moments, but I can tell you that I was uh, raised by a very powerful woman uh, named Clyda Martinez Ellison, and she was an activist. She was involved in civil rights in the city. I grew up in, in Detroit. She was a very active leader. My mom had five sons, no, no daughters. And she taught us that if you eat, then you know, need to cook. If you want a clean house, you need to learn how to clean it up yourself. And she taught us all these lessons. And so I think those are the most formative lessons that I, I learned. Clean up after, after yourself, take care of yourself, respect everybody. And the most foremost uh, authority figure that I grew up with was her until I uh, grew up into uh, an adult. So. Uh, and then even even as early as March, you know, because my mom passed away in, uh, uh, in in March, late March, I was on the phone with her asking her opinion about any number of things. And at the age of 82, she was still practicing social work in Wayne County, Michigan. So this is who raised me. So I would say those early experiences and she herself drew on her, the experiences of her father and mother. Her dad was organizing black voters. Uh, in the 1950s, before Brown versus Board of Education, he talked to us about how white um, business owners refused to sell him gasoline because he was, quote unquote, stirring up a fuss uh, with the local black community in Natchitoches, Louisiana, and how uh, he had to use tractor fuel in his car because nobody would sell him gas and how they burned across across from the house and all the all the things that they went through. So that that sort of is my formative experience and it kind of shaped uh, the trajectory of my life. Thank you, Attorney General. Dorothy Bridges. So in 1999, Dorothy, you became the only African-American woman to head a Minnesota bank and one of only a few nationwide. I don't know too many young girls dreaming to become a banker. <laughs> what was the formative moment and experience that had an impact on you that led you to this career? Uh, thank you, Pahua. Um, so like uh, Attorney General Ellison and Professor Ewick, I really believe that in some ways we are a product of uh, our upbringing. Um, I am the oldest of eight children, born uh, in Tyler Town, Mississippi, but raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
and being surrounded by uh, so many siblings and so many other relatives, we were sort of a community unto ourselves. And one of the things that uh, we had to learn quite quickly was to get by because both my father and my mother never finished even grade school. And so they were considered unskilled laborers. And watching how they managed to feed 10 people with very, very insignificant means has uh, certainly been one of those formative moments for me. Uh, In addition to that, uh, we are no stranger to uh, a lot of what uh, Professor Ewick and Attorney General Ellison has described in terms of uh, children as you are growing up in society, but you're growing up with a family who have been dealt with some of the circumstances that we find ourselves in each generation you learn certain skills. I remember as the oldest of eight kids when my mom and dad went away to work because they had to leave very, very early, no transportation other than the public uh, transportation system. The only instruction that I received from my mom was, we're on our way to work, you need to take care of the kids in the house. Uh, And for a person who is then, what, nine, 10 years old, you have to understand for yourself what that means. For me, it meant whatever little dollars we had around the house, we had to make stretch until they got home. I was responsible for leading the other kids and cleaning the house, uh, making sure chores were done, getting off to school, making sure they had something to eat before they left, and then making sure that uh, dinner was prepared when my parents got home because they worked some very, very long hours. So those formative years really, really helped to define what my approach was to not only leadership, but also being able to budget and love numbers at the end of the day. And so that's what uh, really led me into wanting to be an integral part of our economic system, although I didn't understand that that's what it was at the time. I love that response. And I don't know what it's like to be the oldest of eight children, but I do know what it's like to be the oldest of four. And to have um, a strong woman in my life. So Attorney General Ellison, your mom sounds a lot like mine and uh, Professor Ewig saying, my mom's four foot eight and I'm still scared of her. So there's something to be said about strong women who just know how to lead. And uh, Attorney General Ellison, I'm sorry about the recent passing of your mom but I can see that she still has an imprint on on you and your leadership. My condolences as well, uh, Attorney General. Mine as well. May I I say this, Pahua, and and I want to say thank you to you guys. And of course, when we laid my mom to rest, it was sad. But it's really weird because nobody was sort of like debilitated because she left us with a lot. She left us with a lot. She taught us how to live in this world. And um, whenever I think of her, I'm a little sad because I would love to just call her up. But man, she just left us with such great abundance. And when you live a full life, your loved ones are sad to see you go. But they don't, but they don't, they don't get stuck there because, you know, you, she fortified us. Mm-hmm. And that's what strong women do for their families every day, whether they're here physically or here spiritually. I love that. I love that. Where do you think it came from, from, from your mom, Attorney John Ellison? Where, where did that drive come from for her? All I know is that being the father of four is that you really do not, your kids are no, are no mini-me of you. 
So part of who my mother was was just God's gift to her. But at the same time, she referenced her parents all the time. My mom grew up on a farm. She's a farm girl. She grew up in Dorothy, you being from New Orleans, you probably heard of Natchitoches Parish, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. She grew up on Cane River and she knew what it meant to bale hay and to feed hundreds of people to help get crops in. And she knew what it meant to, to really work hard. She knew that nobody was coming to help you. She knew all those things. So I think it had something to do with her family, with her hard work that she did, I think. And it had something to do with just God imbuing within her a spirit of like, we ain't taking that. My mom went to Xavier. I know, you know, Dorothy, you know about Xavier. Xavier University. Which was, a which was a historically black college. And she used to tell us that she used to get on the bus and take the, um, the, the racial signage that was on the bus. And she used to, cause you could, it was like a hooked sign that slid on a rail and, it, and the blacks had to be behind it and whites could sit in the front of it. She used to take it, put it in her book bag and, and just to harass and try to undermine segregation, right? And <laughs> so who, you know, she would do this her, and, and, and she, she saw her dad protesting it. And she told us that she, at the age of around 13, 14, left Cane River and went to Lafayette, Louisiana to go to a school called Holy Rosary because they were threatening to bomb the house so much that her parents were afraid to have her living there. And that house still sits on Lee Street, now Martin Luther King Street in Natchitoches Parish, Louisiana, Natchitoches City. And so that is what shaped her. That was the crucible of my mom. And she moved to Detroit. And she never stopped agitating. She wasn't afraid. It's funny, you say your mom was four foot eight. My mom wasn't that much taller than four foot eight. She's about five foot one. But she was uh, fierce, you know, and she just didn't, she didn't scare. And she would stand up to anyone. And so that is, that is, uh, I don't, that's where, I, I don't know where it came from. Some things, like what, what made Dorothy Bridges say, you know what? I'm going to be a damn bank president. Yes, I am. Oh, yes, I am. I, I you know, you know. Yeah. I mean, she couldn't say that her ancestors were bank presidents. Right. Somehow, she just said, this is what I'm going to do. Right? Right. And you running a major foundation. I mean, and, and everybody on this call, sometimes it is that deep well of dignity and an inherent quality of the human being, which propels us to uh, push against history, push against the odds, no matter what. Well said, well said. Um, yeah, I, I think about my mother and I think, you know, she's just someone who was just really strong in her convictions, doing many things she never thought she would do. And so when you, sometimes when you've never done anything, you have no fear of doing that one thing. And so you just keep doing it. And so what we saw growing up as kids is just a woman who came to this country at the age of 20, had four kids by you know 26 and just started doing stuff. And we never saw her stop. And so it never stopped us in thinking about what we could do. So like you said, um, Keith, you know, to be at this foundation in this time that I'm in right now, I, I hardly believe it, but here I am, right? Let's talk about the importance of civic engagement, the role, the role that women play in ensuring fair and equitable 
public policy and supporting women's economic development. Certainly, we've come a long way since the 19th Amendment, but I know that barriers still exist, still exist for women. As you see it, what are some barriers that you still see that limit and prevent civic engagement and political participation by women? Let's start with you, Keith. You know, I think we're still dealing with just flat out prejudice. And, and what I mean by that is the presumption that um, the stereotypes uh, will inhibit uh, a woman to be a, an effective leader. The stereotypes are lies. The stereotypes are not true, but I'm telling you, you hear people say, well, women are emotional, women get upset in the crisis, women, uh, you know, I mean, you hear these things. Uh, they're not true, uh, but, but people assume they're true. I will tell you that Nancy Pelosi is probably the best Speaker of the House the United States has ever had. Steady, solid, uh, gets her bills passed, but yet she had to claw her way. She had to be better than the men to even get the job. Every time you see a woman ascend to power, it just, it, it destroys that mythology. I think other forms of prejudice is that um, double standards. I mean, nobody comments on what men are wearing when they run for office, but it's something that women have to consider. I mean, I guarantee you they will be, okay, perfect example, uh, Kamala Harris. Everybody's talking about her wearing Chuck Taylors uh, getting off the, the, the plane, right, on shoes. Now, some folks thought it was funny, and other folks thought, it, and if some folks thought it was funny and adorable, others, conservatives, want to say, oh, it's not professional, but it's still footwear, and it has nothing to do with what she stands for. And so just the double standard, the unfair assumptions, these are the things that I can tell you, you know, my chief of staff, uh, Donna um, uh, Cossett, woman, my chief of staff in Congress, Kari Mo, they always were the steadiest hand. Uh, they were always the people who would help. If you're running an organization, and everybody on this call knows this, if you're the leader of the organization, your tendency is to say yes. <laughs> but you need a number two who's going to be like, I no, you can't do that. <laughs> we don't have the money. Do that. <laughs> you know, so I said, okay, if you really want to do that, you're the boss, you can do it, but you need to know this, 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 and this. You still want to do that? And so those are some of my preliminary thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, what? I think it's what? also... Oh, go ahead, Dorothy. Yeah, I also think it's one of these things that women have not enjoyed privilege of being in leadership roles for very long. And there is the old guard that really um, want to protect their position in our society, uh, in politics and in business and in finance and all of these other sectors of our society. There is a great need to protect that. And as women have come aboard, they are quickly learning how to navigate very successfully uh, these sectors and be very effective at it in a very short period of time. And I think that's threatening. If there is the need to protect, then what you try to do is you try to suppress that effectiveness as much as possible so that it is still viewed as a male-dominant, white male-dominated sector of our economy. Women are stripping away that fallacy 
in a very, very meaningful way. And I am encouraged that women are on their way. We're not there yet. We've got a lot of work to do. There is generation behind us that are some very bright, intelligent young women. And I am very hopeful that that generation and the generations thereafter are going to be more wildly successful than my generation has been. I think that uh, Attorney General Ellison is correct, that there's a lot of discrimination. And uh, Dorothy Bridges has said there's a lot of opportunity in the next um, generation coming through. I would add to the discussion of discrimination something that I teach my students about gender when I teach them the concept of gender, that there's nothing more powerful than teaching another person that they're not as valued and not as good, right? And that's what we do. And so that's an ultimate form of power that we see in both sexism and racism. If you can actually instill in someone the idea that they're not good at math, that they should not eat if they want to fit societal expectations, that they can't run for political office because they're just not good enough. And they begin to believe that themselves, that's the ultimate form of power. And so it's not just the barriers that particular women face, but their internal barriers, their socialization that leads them to take on certain behaviors and certain beliefs. And it happens through those formation processes. You know, so we talked about our mothers, and our families that for these three speakers was a very different, these four, including you, Pahua, right? Very different experience, but not all people have that experience and they may be led through to a different path through their socialization. So when we turn to the political sphere, the truth is that most women today that are in political office are more qualified than the men in political office. And that's in part because they wait to run until they're absolutely sure that they feel totally confident that they are meant to be in the political sphere because they've been told that they aren't meant to be there, right? And I think that's changing a bit because we've seen some people make very high office in this country with very little experience and very little credentials. And so that has been a help. It honestly, it has been a help for women <laughs> to run for office without feeling that, oh, I've got to cross every T and dot every I before I, before I launch my my hat into the political ring. So people not ready, but running and running successfully have actually helped us is what you're saying is what I'm hearing. But of them not being, of them being not ready. Yeah. No, they are ready. The thing is that women have overprepared. Right. They have overprepared in the past because they have been taught that they shouldn't run for political office. They can't run for political office. They're too emotional. They don't have the right education. And so they've waited to build their resume to a degree in which they have much greater qualities than the typical person running for office. And I think that is starting to change as people realize that you don't have to have a specific kind of pedigree before you run for office. So that's not that they're unqualified, it is that they are now around the same qualifications as other candidates, because typically women have been overqualified by the time they decide to run for office. May, may I simply agree with that? You know, I don't have any numbers, but my anecdotal uh, information is that you get some young guy who uh, is like an intern in the office. He can barely even run the copy machine. He thinks he needs to be 
the, he should be in charge. Yep, at 22, I should be the president. I should be, I, I, I. You get some woman who has a master's degree, has years of experience, and she's been told, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if I'm ready. And she, she can run circles around any of these guys, but she has been conditioned to just not be sure. And so that's why I think it's very important to encourage women to run. Uh, you'll be glad you did. If you do, they will be awesome. But it is important to say, you, you, you know, you, sh- you need to run. You need to, because you can do this. And if I may just borrow a quote from Carter G. Woodson. Uh, he wrote, the miseducation of the Negro. If you apply this to the gender sex paradigm, he says this, if you control a person's thinking, you do not have to worry about that person's action. When you determine what a person shall think, you determine you do not have to concern yourself with what that person will do. If you make a person feel that he or she is inferior, you do not have to compel him or her to accept an inferior status for he or she will seek it for themselves. You, if you make a person think that he or she uh, is, un, is justly outcast, you do not have to order him or her to the back door. That person will go without being told and there is no back, and if there's no back door, their behavior will demand one. So this is the psychological trickery that goes on to try to get women to not run, to underrate their skill level, to feel that it's not their turn. And so we've got to counteract that to say, yes, you can, uh, you can do it. And so like, that's one reason why I'm such a mad fan of AOC. She's like, yes, I'm a server in a restaurant and you're damn right, I can be a member of Congress. And she did it and she won and she's awesome, you know? And whether you agree with her particular politics or not is somewhat irrelevant. The fact is, she, uh, because of women who fought before her, formed the idea in her mind that nobody could, that she could do it as well as any man could or as well as anyone could. So this not only applies to just women. When you look at people of color, there are all sorts of roadblocks thrown in our path in terms of what container you're supposed to be in. And if you are to step outside of that container, then you're not equipped. You don't have the skill set. What makes you think that you can accomplish these things? Look at your pedigree, look at your background. It's not suitable to what we need. And this is happening not only in public office. If you take a look around, our society is happening in every facet of our society that you are less than or that your skill set is inferior. And I spent the bulk of my time with my daughters talking about building their self-confidence, that you are good enough. In fact, you are excellent at what you do and not let anyone tell you that you are not. And the worst that can happen if you aspire to do something and you proceed to do it is it you don't meet your goal, but if you never try, you for sure won't meet that goal. Not only do I talk to my daughters like that, but I talk to my sons that way as well. African-American men in this society, it is, let me tell you, it is a very, very challenging uh, role uh, for us as, as mothers to help guide and direct because there's so much noise out there about uh, what Black men ought to stand for. 
and they're men and they should have a degree of confidence in them and their abilities and in themselves to be anything they want to be. And that's why it was so, so inspiring in my time and in my children's time to see the first black president of the United States, not only the first black president, but one of the best presidents in the United States in our history. Uh, that is such a star uh, for our children and for our children to come for the next generations. And we need to continue to support uh, that kind of diversity and that kind of inclusion in every facet of our society, business and government and healthcare and finance, you name it, that, that's a must. Let's talk about that. So I think the importance of representation, and I'm sure you all have really good examples, but for our listeners, can you give us real examples of things you know would not have happened if it were not for those people in the room who looked different, said different things that led to a change that needed to happen? Christine, I'm going to start with you. I don't know if you want to talk about the work you've done in Latin America or maybe what you've seen even at the university, but what I would say big P and small P policies that you've seen change because of the people represented in the room. Well, let me give you some background on the research on this, and then I'll give you an example that comes out of my own research. There's quite a bit of research in the United States on what impact uh, it has when you elect uh, people to office that represent more diverse constituencies. So more women, more people of color, whether it's African-American, Latino, Asian, etc. And we find that for women, it makes a difference. It also makes a difference for African-Americans. It also makes a difference for Latinos. We, across the board, it makes a difference for changing political agendas. You see more issues representing the interests of those groups on political agendas. You see these individuals voting more often for those interests. And there's there's some, of course, how you how you define the interests of particular groups is always tricky. But so, for example, a colleague of mine, Michelle Swears, who studies the U.S. Congress, she finds that when she looks at voting records in the U.S. Congress, women legislators are more likely to pass votes um, or to cast votes in favor of women's health and abortion access uh, over other kinds of factors such as political party or experience or other controlling for other kinds of factors. When we look at social welfare issue areas like education, uh, child and family policy, um, health policy, women more often than male legislators will vote to promote policies that expand those, those social policy areas. Again, that's from Michelle Swears' uh, research, but there's a number of different researchers who have looked at the U.S. Congress and find this is important. Partisanship is also important. So you're going to see Democrat women to promote those kinds of policies because there's a coming together of the political parties platform along with those interests. And we know that women, that just doesn't mean that women vote in particular ways. It's not an essentialist um, view. Uh, we know that Sarah Palin is very different from Kamala Harris right? So women come in all different partisan stripes. They come from all different backgrounds. But we, we do see on balance when we look at the broad numbers that it makes a difference in terms of getting policy issues onto agendas and policy issues passed 
that support particular parts of the population when you have greater representation. From my own research, I would say, and now again, my, my own research looks at Latin America. Well, I find these same kinds of basic relationships when I look at sponsoring of bills uh, in Latin American countries. But there's also an important role, strategic role played by leaders within politics. So for example, one of the countries that I study is Peru. And there was a big piece of legislation that's very important. It's sort of like an equal rights amendment, but not constitutional level, but a piece of legislation that mandates that gender equity be considered in every kind of legislative initiative in the country. So it really is like crossing all policy fields, legislators need to pay attention to what are the implications for gender equity. So a big piece of legislation, and it just sat in committee year after year, and it was never brought up to the legislative floor. And it took, when there was a woman president of the Congress, there's a rotating presidency of the Congress in Peru, when a woman president was finally in that position, and she wasn't from a leftist party, she was even from a right-leaning party. Once she was in that position, she moved that legislation along, and it got passed. So I think we know on balance, but we also know the critical role that women leaders can play. And we know that that happens in the United States as well. Women will often take leadership roles on specific pieces of legislation that are important, and they will make sure to see that piece of legislation to success. Keith, I, I'm so curious, does this comport with your experience in Congress? Where at the state yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me tell you, so it is interesting to me that the squad is all women, right? That the Black Lives Matter movement is led by women, right? Men support it. Plenty of men in the BLM movement, but the three women who coined the term and who lead it are their women. When women get into elected office, yes, they stand up for policies that will help women, but they also stand up for policies that will help family. Women seem to have a sense of everybody. One good reason to elect women is that even though it's true, you got conservative women, you got liberal women, you got moderate women, you got women all over the political spectrum. There is a tendency to prioritize the welfare and benefit of the family and to think a little bit more broadly than the individual. Men tend to think of themselves. Women tend to think of the family. I don't know this. I don't have any sense for this, but you know, it's interesting to me that the only person who said that and George W. Bush should not be given a blank check uh, after 9-11 was uh, Barbara Lee, woman. And if you listen to Barbara Lee and you listen to Nancy Pelosi, they will both tell the story and say, you know what, Barbara, it isn't like we didn't know that this was the wrong policy. We just all thought that if you, you cannot possibly know on this or you're going to fry politically. Barbara said, fry, no fry. It's wrong. I'm not doing it. And it didn't. It's interesting to me that, you know, Maxine Waters is the one who's really, really shaped the Financial Services Committee. And if you look at the 2008 financial crisis, let me name for you the three people who warned us, who told us, and who tried to mitigate this. One is a woman named Brooks Lee Bourne, who stood against the commodity. You know, you know we, we, she tried to say that we need to stand against credit swaps and they need to be regulated. All the men said we don't, don't need to regulate them. 
and they actually got rid of her. But if you read the literature, she was standing up for regulating credit default swaps. Uh, if Sheila Bear, a conservative Republican woman, head of the FDIC, was sort of the chief architect of keeping people in their homes and renegotiating principal on mortgages. And of course, the world knows Elizabeth Warren, who was the architect of the, uh, the, um, the CFPB, the uh, Consumer Financial uh, Protection Bureau. If there's, if there's three like, like heroes of the 2008 financial collapse, scarcely any men's names come to light, but clearly women's names do. And they, and they span the political spectrum. Elizabeth on the left, Sheila on the right, Brooksley born in the middle, but they all were talking about, we, we, we are going to suffer if we don't regulate this. And the men were like, you keep talking, sister, and we're going to fire you. And that's exactly what they did to Brooksley Bourne. I would add, if I could just jump in before Dorothy comes in, uh, in some of, some of the research that we've seen and in some of my own research, women of color legislators, indigenous women legislators, a very interesting role. Some of the research on state-level Latina legislators in the Southwest has shown that Latina legislators are more likely to support both Latino issues and women's issues, whereas we don't see Latino legislators doing that same pivot and looking across constituencies. And they will also support, Latina legislators will also support the issues of African Americans, of Asians, and this is a study by Luis Fraga and co-authors. And I'm finding something similar in Latin America where indigenous women legislators, as well as Afro-descendant women legislators in Colombia, where there are quite a few, they are also more, more able to play that pivot role and are looking at the needs of, of multiple marginalized communities and advocating across issue areas. So I'm a big fan of, of, of history. And I remember when I was in college, I had to do independent study because I'd given birth to my second, my third child and took independent study, um, ended up doing a paper on Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman to run for president of the United States. She is astounding to me with a master's degree in education uh, from Columbia University. There goes that more than qualified yeah. piece of it. Um, she advocated for many, many liberal causes. Um, so um, in 1972, um, by the way, she was also the founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus. Talk about something that's pivotal. Uh, she helped to co-found that. Um, she uh, decided to run for president and seek the presidential nomination. And when asked why she decided to run, she said somebody had to do it first. You know, talk about bold and courageous. Uh, here's a woman who not only just the rare thing to be seen around the halls of Congress, but having the, and I'm going to put it in quotations, the audacity to run for president of the United States, because that's how it's been described, the audacity to run, what gave her the qualifications and all of the interests she championed throughout her political career. Another individual, Mary McLeod Bethune, you know, FDR had such great faith in her, uh, in her ability to really, really connect to the people, especially African-American people, that he put her in some key cabinet positions throughout her lifetime. And education was her big thing. And she founded one of the first colleges where African-Americans could attend to go to school to get a higher education. 
an HBCU, Bethune-Cookman College, and Daytona, Florida. These are prime examples of individuals. And then I often wonder why that kind of momentum behind these individuals didn't stay the course and what happened in this transition from then until now is a really big concerning piece of it. And that's because I think up until this point, there have been sporadic interest in supporting women who took these big bold steps by other women. And I think that's truly important. And I think, you know, one of the things for the next generation that we need to do is to ensure them that we're, we, we've got their backs. And that's a must in order for us to succeed. And to, let's, to talk, let's talk about that. I love that. We've got their backs. So in the time that we have, I can't believe our time is almost coming to a close, but what's the advice you would give Dorothy? What's the signal that you would have liked to have received back when you were getting started that you needed to hear in order to um, maybe get on your path sooner, quicker, faster? What uh, you would give now? Yeah, to be very frank with you, I think women were not as, not only were they not as confident in themselves, but they were not as confident in other women. And that's one of the things that really could have been made all of the difference in the world. You know, I'm really proud of my career and my profession as uh, CEO and president of a couple of community banks. But the holy grail for me is CEO and president of a Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank or, uh, you know, any number of top six uh, financial institutions in, in the country or in the world even. Uh, the female Jamie Diamond. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, and, get, and getting that support from me to the next generation of uh, financial service professionals who, are, who happen to be women is exactly what my goal is, is to really support, uh, not just in, in terms of sharing my experience and my skills and my leadership, but also uh, listening and helping to support their efforts. And I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And then Keith, you know, channeling the spirit of your mom and you are a father, a husband. Uh, you have many young people coming through um, your lives. What advice do you have for them, these young women coming up? Women leaders often are the groundbreakers, the, the people who are introduced to new ideas, the people who sometimes are going to be willing to disrupt the status quo so that we can reach higher heights than before. And that if you will support the leadership of women, and I mean women and men, you know, you'll be glad you did. Uh, our society will be better than it was. When women succeed, really everybody succeeds. And now I'll say to men listening to this, if your wife or your partner or your female or your child is suffering uh, sex har sexual harassment or just wage discrimination, are be they are suffering in terms of their ability to contribute to your household. It is not in the interest of work families to allow uh, sex discrimination in any form or fashion to exist. It is detriment. Thank you so much. And Christina, you want to close this out with the last word? Sure. I would say to young people today, follow your passion, get engaged. Remember that political power is one of the only counterweights we have to economic power. And so you can use it even if you don't have um, great economic needs. Uh, and I would say get out of your comfort zone. 
I think it's really important that we meet across differences, especially in our current climate of uh, racial tensions, racial injustice, to really reach across those lines and understand other experiences. Because it's not just about uh, your own experience, that brings a lot of how we bring ourselves to the table is through our own experience. But it's also important to start to see the world through the eyes of other people as well and bring that to your leadership. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I would not have gotten to where I am if it were not for people who saw things in me that I did not see. And I think that all three of you um, in your roles, you have seen leadership qualities in people. And I think as women, uh, more so than men, I think we need those things pointed out to us, even though we know we have it. So um, thank you for all that you do. It's so great to be able to be in conversation with you, uh, Professor Ewig with you, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, and Dorothy Bridges, the one and only. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the WBDC's Raising Up the Vote campaign and about the power of voting to drive women's economic empowerment, please go to our website, wbdc.org backslash raising up the vote. We hope you will join us in this important effort to raise up the vote. This movement reminds us that we can and should and indeed must pick up our banner today in 2020 and continue to enact necessary change as we participate in this year's election and other elections to come. Make sure to look for more conversations from Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women Voting Inequality. And don't forget to join the movement at hashtag RaiseUpTheVote. And finally, get out there and vote on November 3rd. The Women's Business Development Center is a nationally recognized leader in the field of women's economic development. We're committed to supporting and accelerating business development and growth, targeting women and serving all diverse business owners to strengthen their impact in and impact on the economy. For additional information about the WBDC, please go to wbdc.org and thank you for listening.